All right, we now welcome on a guest I've been wanting to have on for quite a while, Rob Paul, draft extraordinaire, uh, host of the Seven Rounds in Heavens podcast on the Sports Drink uh, Audio Network, which is formerly Armchair, which is how we know of each other through the internet sphere. I appreciate you coming on, man. How are you? Not bad. Thanks for having me. Always glad to talk draft with anyone. Absolutely. So I, if there's any overlap with this audience and I guess the armchair audience, uh, you guys well know, uh, I was with kind of friends with Andrew Stevens. We all drum up a sports blog as juniors in college, didn't really know where it's going. And now it's turned on to a full on audio medium, which is where we kind of, I guess, sort of cross paths. I think we followed each other on Twitter and I really just enjoyed your draft content and your draft video stuff. And I know you've been doing that for I'm going to say armchair for at least another three months. Uh, Andrew's going to get mad at me about that, but it's just going to have it. My brain's slow. Um, so I know you've been doing that for a while, and I just really enjoyed your content, so I'm glad you finally came on. I guess we'll start there. When did you kind of uh, fall in love with the draft thing? Because obviously you know, there's a lot of people out there that want to do sports. Sports journalism don't really know what they want to get into. And I would consider drafting, draft and prospect stuff pretty specific. So how did you kind of land there? Well, originally, um, I kind of, I started watching football like we all do when I was pretty young. And then the idea of the draft just really interested me. So I want to say about the 2007 draft when uh, Jamarcus Russell went number one. That was the year I started like very much paying attention to it. Not like scouting prospects or anything, but just getting more plugged in. And that led me to watching more college football because I was originally just watching a lot of NFL as a kid. And then from there, through high school, I kind of got more and more as I was playing football, I started to understand the game a little bit better. And then I started from there scouting a little bit. And then you kind of hit your 20s and in your free time, you, you want to do something because there's just all this time when you're not at work. And uh, I just started kind of grinding tape that way. And Twitter's a great place to throw up clips and get off takes. So it just kind of all developed from there, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I would encourage anyone listening to this to go follow you at Rob underscore Paul. If you don't know how to spell that, you probably didn't know how to turn this podcast on. So I'll save that. But <laughs> I, it's really good stuff, man. And I, I, I noticed this probably, I don't know, maybe it was three or four drafts ago, whenever it was, but I enjoy the videos you put out because, you know, when you read a lot of this draft stuff, a lot of it's like jargon and you're scrolling through mocks and stuff like that. But, like, what I like is you put the clip and what you're watching on video and then kind of what you think about that clip real time versus, like, I guess some general skill set stuff about the guy. But I guess it's that format to me is easily digestible and easy to understand. Did you think you were, like, I guess doing anything different when you started doing that? Or, like, was it just for a lack of a place to write it? Like, how did that kind of come about? Because that's the part I really enjoyed. Well, yeah, I, I think you kind of hit it on the head there with uh, you'll find paragraphs and paragraphs about prospects and it's using, there's a lot of kind of dumb scouting terms to explain things. And without the visual aspect of it, I feel like saying this guy has oily hips. That's the, the scout, scouts love to say that. But unless you can see it, like when you see a guy who has a smooth hips, you can understand what they mean. But just saying guy has oily hips, it's whatever. And just kind of throwing silly words like that at a thing and uh another another reason i started doing the clips was because i found that a lot of people would write these great articles but they wouldn't necessarily have examples of what this player is doing and why they're so good at doing it 
And so I started putting out these clips. And then from there, a lot of uh, more important and smarter football writers than myself started kind of incorporating my clips into their articles. And I, I, from there, I just thought, I'm watching this stuff anyway. When I see something that pops out to me, I might as well film it, throw it on Twitter, get myself some followers, give these people some something to incorporate into their own articles. And that's kind of how that all started. We also buried the lead here. This podcast is now an international podcast. You are Canadian from Ontario. Are you based in Toronto? I think is that. Yeah, I live in Toronto right now. Awesome. Awesome. So you're originally from, are you originally from there? Uh, about 45 minutes North of Toronto. Cool. Cool. So here's a, here's the, I'm just going to get the dumb questions out of the way. Kid from Mississippi. Uh, you're supposed to like hockey, right? How does, how did you get into football? Uh, I couldn't skate very well. I was a big kid growing up. Okay. And so I couldn't really skate. Didn't love the idea of being on ice. And then when you're kind of a, a heavier kid, you end up gravitating towards football where you can play some offensive line. And it just felt like the, the right sport for a big kid. And from there, the love only grew. Awesome. So last thing before we get into the draft, you know, it, it, growing up, I'll just find it interesting because like I don't consider myself a draft expert at all. Like I'm, my niche is probably baseball. And then with where I went to school and what I covered college baseball, which I know is just huge in Canada. So I won't bore you with that. But <laughs> <laughs> like how, like how here's, so do you do CFL stuff too? Or are you just all NFL all the time? I'm all NFL all the time. I'll, I'll the, the CFL is like, it's more of a big deal in Western Canada. And it's kind of, it's a little bit of a joke in Ontario because I don't know. The, 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 no one really loves watching the CFL. Most people here are NFL fans, right. um, but legitimately huge out West. But like, for example, the CFL draft was last night and I, I was like following it. And it's, it's pretty funny because the best Canadian prospects were all guys who got drafted in the NFL draft. And then, so the CFL teams have to not take these guys even though they know they're the best eligible Canadians because they know there's not a chance in hell they're going to come play in Canada right and, and so like the number one pick in the CFL draft for example was a guy they just recently discovered is Canadian they didn't know because he played tight end at Boston College and he was on the Patriots like practice squad last year and so it's just goofy things like that with the CFL are kind of all I'm invested in I, I only watch the games kind of over the summer because the season starts before the NFL. What is it? So you mentioned the prospects and kids coming from Canada and Ole Miss actually has a pair of kids, Tavius Robinson and a kid named Dean Leonard, if I'm not mistaken, that Kiffin brought down from Canada over the last two years. How is obviously with, you know, in the States or whatever, you have rivals and two, four, seven guys, you know, showing up to your like junior high practices, trying to catch an interview before you have a driver's license. Like you're on the radar early. How do kids that are prospects from Canada jump on American college radars? A lot of the time it is, there are, I don't, it's, it's not nearly to the extent of like rivals, but there is that kind of version of a thing in Canada. And so generally if there's a kid who's just ridiculous, like, I, I, I played with um, and against a couple of guys who did end up going down to the States and playing, like, D1. And so, generally, they'll they'll get some hype in Canada. And from there, if they're, like, 6'5 and 250 or whatever, they'll uh, end up getting recruited by a prep school or applying to a prep school. 
and then coming to the States and then from there getting into D1 football. Kind of transitioning to the draft and, you know, it seems like everything, you know, once the draft happens, obviously guys that do what you do, like work's not over, but like there's kind of less, uh, maybe less to decipher at that point because, you know, the big event has already shook out. So like what's your process leading up to the draft? Because one of the things I find interesting about what guys like you do is like, there's no half-assing yet for the lack of a better phrase. There's, there's so many dudes and so many people and prospects to cover. I always thought the same thing with recruiting. I didn't understand how the recruiting guys did it, but they have databases and services that help them. How do you kind of like wrap a total umbrella around the amount of prospects, I guess, worth, worth watching in a given year, if that makes any sense? It, it can be pretty overwhelming. So generally like, I'll start, I'll really start looking towards, for for example, for 2022, probably in a month, I'll start looking into it. I like to go, personally, I go conference by conference, okay. and I'll watch a ton of guys. And you can generally get a, a good feel of if a guy's an NFL prospect pretty early on, even if he's an undrafted guy, you can tell he's here when the other guys are down here type thing. Um, so I'll go conference by conference, start small, and go through a handful of guys. Um, it, it, it can be a bit of a grind, but I find if I get through these guys early and then from there I have a good idea of who the guys who actually matter are, that's where I start. So, for example, I watched almost 500 guys for this this past draft. Good Lord. But, but only 300 and maybe just over 300 were kind of worthwhile type dudes. Um, so if you, you slog through and generally the offensive linemen who are not very good are the hardest to get through, but if you slog through guys early through the summer and then the season hits and obviously more guys get on the radar through the season, you keep up with college football, you you write names down as you go and go. I, if, if a guy at Iowa state's flashing a lot, write his name down, get to the tape later in the process. But like I use, it takes me 10 months or so of, of tape watching to finalize my top 300 like I didn't finalize it until I think a day and a half before the actual 2021 NFL draft so that's a lot of time to put in it's I guess a two-parter here is like how many hours because you do you are a reporter for a media outlet in Toronto you know as a as a day job which is anyone who works in the journalism industry I have immense respect for because it's someone who kind of exited and maybe gets back in at some point it's not for the faint of heart. Like, I mean, that's enough. That's a lot of hours in its own right. How much time are you putting into draft work and watching tape in the, you know, throughout a given week? And then two, where do you get it? Because you're not looking at TV broadcast angles. How does that work? So, okay. Basically I spend, I try to at least get in two hours of tape watching every day. Wow. Um, so and then obviously depending on time, like it, it'll be more, sometimes it'll be less. Um, especially again, over the summer when like, if I'm not doing anything on a weekend, I'll try to get through some stuff and, and I, I'll go through conference positions, whatever. But yeah, so a lot of my free time does go to this and that can be, sometimes I can get pretty burnt out from it. So I know when to take a break at this point, um, having done this at, at, with this much time going in for the last, like, I think four drafts now. Um, and as for wearing a tape, it, that is probably been the most difficult thing because 
originally, when I started, it was a lot of broadcast um, off YouTube because, guys, the draft Twitter community is like it can be toxic, but it's pretty strong in terms of guys cutting tape, putting it on YouTube for other guys to use. Um, and then YouTube ended up stripping like all of it down for, for copyright stuff. And wow. this, this was a while ago. Um, but as for the all 22, there's a, I, I, I pay for uh, a, a guy has a Patreon where he um, he'll charge like, it, it's not even that much. It's like a dollar a month or whatever. And uh, he, he, he's built a database with just all 22 tape that he's cut up for various prospects. And, it's like very extensive. Um, like I was watching like D D two DBs on it. And wow. so, yeah, it's a lot of, there's a lot of people in this community of kind of draft nerds who will put, put all this work in just so other people can enjoy it the way I do. Does this is a dumb question. So maybe fill in like color in the, what I'm actually asking is like, so the, the guys you see on television, the Mel Kuypers, the Todd McShays, I'm guessing they have more resources at their disposal than you, someone like you trying to – not trying to crack in, but someone, you know, who's not working at the mothership like ESPN does. How drastic is that, I guess, different amount of resources kind of avail- available to you to watch guys? You know, aside from the travel, you know, in normal years, I guess they're going to see guys. But from like a tape perspective, how big of a difference is that? It's huge because they, they get – the the full all 22 copies from schools or from like the same way NFL teams would get the all 22 copies guys like Todd McShay, um, Mel Kuyper, uh, Daniel Jeremiah, Dane Brugler, they all get it from the, the, like the main source, the real source. So they don't have to, I guess there has been times where I want to watch a guy and there's just not tape available for him yet. And I just have to hold out, hope someone will get their hands on the all 22 um, because it, it seems like the football coaching world's kind of secretive about all 22. So they're not just giving it out to the general public. Um, there, there's uh there's a bit of a struggle at times, but yeah, if you're at, if you're at one of the big media places, you're generally um, it's pretty, I think easy to get the, the tape. That makes sense, which makes, you know, what I guess the work you're doing even more impressive and more insightful just in the sense that you can't just walk in somewhere and pop in whatever the hell you want. I mean, you mentioned you were trying to watch a guy the other day and just like couldn't do it. You got to hold out hope till it comes somewhere else. So kind of transitioning into this draft as someone who I'm a big sports fan. I love the NFL that I loved it because particularly when I was working covering college sports, that was kind of my one off day in the fall. Like Ole Miss would play on a Saturday and you could get back on a Sunday and like write some stuff in the morning. And then that was the one day I didn't have anything to do. But I don't consider myself a draft nut by any means just because I don't understand what goes into the process. So with all that being said, it did feel like there was a much more of a sense of uncertainty to this 2021 draft than you've had in quite a long time. And I'm guessing a lot of that had to do with, you know, a lack of a normal combine, a lack of kind of getting around the country to see these guys as often as you could. How much did that factor into the general – I put it this way. There seems like there's always a lot of groupthink amongst the guys that work for these teams, and that seemed to be lacking this year because they aren't, you know, at the combine and all that stuff together. What was that like? That is – that is you, you nailed that. A hundred percent. Every year, I mean, between – things like the East West Shrine game, which was canceled, the senior bowl, which did actually happen. And then the combine and then the pro day circuit, all these scouts are interacting. 
there is definitely group think in the NFL. Uh, and, and this year, again, more than this was the most uncertain draft I think we've ever seen. Um, obviously, we had some idea of quarterbacks going top three, but really after that, it was it, there. There was some shocking picks, and the without having the resources like the NFL Combine, where m- one of the most important things about the Combine is the medical checks, and then not having that, there was like a little. They they ended up bringing 150 players to Indianapolis like about a couple of weeks before the draft to get some medical checks in of the top tier guys. But like there, there was a huge chunk of guys. They just don't get the medicals on this year. And the testing numbers always at a pro day aren't, you can't totally trust a guy who runs a, a four, three at the, at the pro day. If on tape, he looked like he ran a four five. Um, so having no combine really, really made this a weird year. Um, a lot, and obviously there was guys who opted out too, and you're using previous year tape. Uh, and that's why I think this year, more than any other year, the senior bowl was more important than ever. Like the senior bowl is always one of the marquee things on, on the draft schedule, but when you haven't seen some of these guys play and they show up to the senior bowl and they, they dominate and it makes you think, well, had he been able to play this year? Like with a D3 guy like Quinn Miners, for example, from Wisconsin Whitewater, he didn't have a season. He goes to the Senior Bowl, he dominates. And then it, it kind of helped him more than I think it would in most years because the, that's the kind of the lasting thought. Um, but yeah, with, without all the scouts kind of interacting everywhere, I think there was less groupthink. Uh, and there was more shocking picks, especially on in the second and third rounds, I think, than you're kind of used to um and a lot of the a lot of the first round maybe the picks the players going in the first round wasn't shocking but the the teams that took them was a little more surprising just because i think even for the big reporters like adam Schefter, ian rapport they had less of an idea than ever as well and that was headlined by having an immensely quarterback heavy first round this year right you had five guys go or kind of five guys talked about the entire time. The first two seem to be pretty set in stone, right? Your Lawrence going to Jacksonville, Wilson goes to the Jets. And then one of the crazier storylines that I probably I can remember in draft recent memory is the whole 49ers trading up to three. They're seemingly from people that cover the NFL and cover these organizations being like a organizational divide on who they wanted to take, whether it was Trey Lance or Mac Jones and that they ruled out Justin Fields. I guess the best way to ask this, what were just general thoughts on the last three guys, like, and how that played out was from San Francisco taking Lance to, you know, Fields trading, getting traded up by the Bears, taking him to Mac Jones falling to the Patriots. Like, how did you see that playing out beforehand? And just what were your thoughts after it happened? So when the trade happened, my my immediate thought was, oh, they're taking Trey Lance. He's a perfect fit for what Shanahan does with the play action heavy boot. So you thought that from the start. Uh, that's what I thought immediately. But I, um, w- when the trade happened, I was watching uh, Zach Wilson's Pro Day on NFL Network. And so Daniel Jeremiah is on the broadcast. And he, he first thing he says is it's, it, he thinks it's Trey Lance as well. And then he, all of a sudden he goes, well, one name not to, not to rule out is Mac Jones. And I'm thinking Mac Jones is, in, in my mind, nowhere near as talented as Trey Lance or Justin Fields. And then there it just – it spread like wildfire, this, this whole Mac Jones going three to San Francisco thing. 
And I mean, the vast majority of people uh, I trust that are part of draft Twitter were like, there's no way. And then as we got closer and closer and closer, I started thinking, well, I mean, there was when, when Baker Mayfield went number one, the whole rumor was it's going to be uh, Sam Darnold. And then last second, they're like, no, it's going to be Baker Mayfield. And it was all up in the air. And I was, so I was, the NFL's crazy. Who knows? Is it going to be Mac Jones? So I, there was, a, there, I, I, by the time the pick was happening, I still thought it would be Trey Lance, but really had no idea. So that, that was insane. Um, and with the Justin Fields thing, I think there was par- partially some overreactions to his poorer games um, this past year. I mean, you, you look at the Indiana game and the Northwestern game. He really struggled in those games. Then you watch the Clemson game. And I, I put his game this past season against Clemson in the playoff up against any quarterback in this draft class. I thought it was the, the best game any quarterback had. And so there, and then there was this thought that he was a slow processor and that kind of hung with him throughout the process. But in reality, when you watch the tape, he's not like, he's not a slow processor. And a lot of what Ohio state's offense does under Ryan day is they have option routes with receivers. So the receiver is reading the DB and running the route. So Justin Fields has to hold the ball naturally a little longer than a guy playing in a quicker offense. And so I think that had something to do with it. The, the Buckeye, the, the offense, the Buckeyes ran um, wasn't as QB friendly as say the offense Alabama ran with Mac Jones. He threw more um, bubble screens and more RPOs than any other quarterback in that went in the first round. Um, I didn't think he would end up sliding all the way to 11 I'm glad Chicago traded up, take him. I thought knowing Chicago, when they made that move, I thought they were going to take Mac Jones because they just don't have a great history of drafting quarterbacks. Uh, and then New England taking Mac Jones, just, I mean, that's very New England of them. Uh, obviously, Belichick has the relationship with Nick Saban. So I'm assuming that Belichick very much trusts what Mac Jones does. And Mac Jones is a really good fit for what Josh McDaniels runs. So ultimately, all – all the quarterbacks ended up kind of with the perfect team fit, which I'm really excited about because I never, despite me having Mac Jones as a, a lot lower than those top four guys, I want Mac Jones to be good because I want good quarterbacks in the NFL. It makes football funner. Um, and so I, I'm really excited to see how these guys all fit in these offenses because schematically, I think they all went to the perfect team. Um, and the other thing is I'm, I'm really excited to see how early – other than Lawrence and Wilson, who I think will be starting week one, how early Lance Fields and Mac Jones hit the field. Yeah. And so the, the, with the Mac, not Mac Jones, excuse me, with the Trevor Lawrence, I'm going to get this right eventually (laughs) with the Justin Fields aspect of it. We talked about a lack of group think, but like generally that's what happens in the normal years where there is kind of some group think where like one guy starts sliding amongst a host of guys, then all of a sudden they've, not played a football game maybe he hasn't even had a pro day yet and he starts like losing stock or whatever and then it almost became like a political thing amongst people and like how they felt about it in your mind just being plugged into the draft community and obviously watching a ton of NFL like what was the source of that because of a a guy that I interned with at MLB.com a couple years ago who works for the ringer now like wrote a pretty good piece just kind of disproving he's the slow reader or a one read guy. Um, but 
there seem to be other things as well. You get the classic, does he love football thing? And you even had some of that with Lawrence, which I think is, is I guess, warranted to some degree if the guy really just doesn't give a shit. But I think for the most part, that's kind of dumb. So, like, in your mind, where did all that stem from and why did that happen? Because it was kind of a hard story to follow. I think there, there's a couple things that factor in. So, the processing thing, coming back to that offense Ohio State ran. And when there's four legitimately, like, Zach Wilson, Trevor Lawrence, Trey Lance, and Justin Fields, to me, those four are all top, like, guys you've taken the top three. And so, when you've get, you get all these absurd quarterback talents – and you're trying to kind of find ways to differentiate between the the four of them, I'm kind of take Trevor Lawrence out of that conversation because he was sure. clearly the number one. But when you're trying to break up Wilson, Lance, and Fields, and you throw in the Zach Wilson tape, and he, I mean, you watch him. It's against G5 defenses, but he's making some of the most incredible deep ball placement throws you're going to see. You throw in the Trey Lance tape, the kid's 6'3", 220, and he's the most well-built quarterback in the group. He, he's a ridiculous runner and he has more power at the line of scrimmage than any of these other quarterbacks. He, he has full control of um, uh, blocking assignments at the line because North Dakota state runs this really classic pro style offense. And then you get to Justin Fields and the really you're always told not to scout the helmet, scout the kid, but it's, it's hard to ignore Dwayne Haskins burning out immediately as the last Ohio state quarterback so I think that seeps into minds. Then, yeah, with the, the slow read narrative that is more actually just based off of the way their offense is run and not off the player. And then you look at the, the two games he struggled in, basically in his entire Ohio State career coming against Northwestern Indiana. Uh, and they're, they're, they're awful games for him. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Two really good defenses and two really well-coached defenses. So when you're trying to break this up, and like Zach Wilson didn't play a bad game this year, I, mind you, BYU is playing a way easier schedule than Ohio State. Right. And there's recency bias that goes into it. Fields, again, his second last game at, at Ohio State was the best quarterback tape I'd seen this year against Clemson. And, and Trey Lance, it's all this upside with him. So because he's the youngest of the group and he only really started for one year at North Dakota State, and he's the, the NFL loves the upside for what could this kid be and not what he is now. Um, so I think all these different factors kind of go into it. And then really last second with Justin Fields, uh, it, it, it's, I, I think it was leaked by an NFL team, probably, that he has epilepsy. And that's something that the NFL is going to overreact to. Uh, it's never affected him in his career, but that, that that's going to go down as a red flag because it's the scouting process takes every little thing in, into um, – like ink goes into the report. So if he, he's got that, you're going to put that as a red flag if you're an NFL team, which uh, I think is ridiculous. But the NFL is still a very old thinking way. Yeah. Um, so I think all these different factors went into him falling down the board, whereas the other three go top three. Real quick with that, I, I did not see the epilepsy part of it. Do you think that would have changed the reaction and fallout from that would have changed it all with normal medical stuff? Or is that something that probably would have just remained? I think ultimately he still would have – I don't know if – I don't – it's hard to say because I really can't believe he fell to 11. I, I had him fourth on my board. He was my second quarterback. And I, I, the other part of the problem is the team's picking after those top three. The Falcons are and the Lions are really the only two. And I guess Denver. 
but they they had the Aaron Rodgers rumors. But those are the teams who are you felt should have taken him because he's an elite quarterback. I mean, basically everyone outside of Cincinnati, and Miami, I think after 49ers should have taken him. But um, I think all these different things factor in, and it's hard to knock any of the teams who passed on him if you take positional value out of the equation because they took the the like the 10 guys who, who went ahead of them are 10 of the top 15 guys in the class. So again, it's just, I think there's a lot of different things and, and Justin Fields skill set really fits Chicago and what Matt Nagy's done with um, it's, it's a deep shot RPO style. It's got air raid in it. It's a very diverse passing offense when it's at its peak. Um, and, and so I'm really glad he ended up there. I'll never understand why a team like Detroit passes on him, but they do get a franchise left tackle in Panay Sewell. So you can almost justify it when you look at who they did take if you remove positional value from the equation. You mentioned the Detroit part. Like, do you think – I know you can't think about it this way as an organization, but do you think there was any part of them that was like, well, if we draft a quarterback now, we're just essentially having a big, gigantic-ass sign in front of our facility that says we lost the golf trade? Like, is there any part of that to it, do you think? I mean – I so I think when it comes to quarterbacks, that does stick in their mind. Their new GM Brad Holmes was with the Rams. He probably thinks a little more of Jared Goff than some of the rest of us do. And then obviously, totally new regime. They don't. They, there's not a lot of pressure for them to win now. And if they don't take a quarterback, there's even less pressure for them to win now because they're at minimum getting three years. You would generally think, and, and so there's always the thought of. And this is a really old school thought with uh, NFL draft classes is the next class is, is going to be better. It's going to be better. But this year, because of the lack of information and just the impact of COVID on everything, there there is a real thought to it that next year's class, they're going to have way more information on it because assuming the world gets back to normal very soon, like the combine is going to happen. Pro days are going to happen. Face-to-face meetings are going to start happening again. The real during season scouting where scouts can actually attend games is going to happen. So with a team like Detroit, who doesn't have that pressure to win now, they're totally a new regime and they, they end up getting Panay Sewell, who is a top three player in this class at the second most important position left tackle and can kind of slowly reset, I think for Detroit and when you factor in the golf thing, there is, there is, I think that does, that is, they're humans running these organizations, right? And I think if you immediately draft a Justin Fields, now I still would have done it, but if you immediately draft a Justin Fields, it is them openly like admitting that that was uh, a pretty, like we should have got more value for Matthew Stafford than what we got. Right. One, two more quick things on quarterbacks. We'll move on to something else. You know, when Lance got drafted third, I was in the car on the way to a wedding, unfortunately. Real kick in the nuts there. But I was looking at, like, Twitter, and there was a lot of people, like, I didn't see the broadcast live. I tried to tune in after when I got, like, better service. I was in the middle of nowhere, Louisiana. Wild place if you ever make it down here. Um, so, so, I'm, like, seeing all this reaction that they these people are acting, like, not offended or whatever, but just, like, amazed that, the draft coverage in terms of him being like this great story, this great surprise, like them acting that way to where it's like, cause he'd been in the conversation for so long. But when you dig a little deeper on it, 
19 starts ago for him, or I guess 17 starts ago, because I think the two 2018 starts, he actually came off the bench. He was in a run-heavy offense at a high school in Minnesota as a one-star recruit. Like, it actually is a more rapid ascension than you think, despite the fact that his name's kind of been in the buzz for a while, for the lack of a better phrase. Do you think he's the most untapped is the wrong word, but do you think he's the one we know the least about, about what he could be because of that? Because it is kind of a fascinating story. He has one full season at North Dakota State, and then all of a sudden he's the third overall pick in the draft. And like I said, you know, run offense in high school and a one-star recruit, that's a pretty rapid ascent. Yeah, no, the Trey Lance story is unbelievable. And I, I remember, obviously, um, after his redshirt freshman season, he, they, they go undefeated. He wins the FCS National Championship. And that summer, everyone on draft Twitter is, is talking to Trevor Lawrence um, and, and Justin Fields because, obviously, they're, they're the headliners. And, and you started to hear a little bit of this Trey Lance buzz. And it felt similarly to when Josh Allen was at Wyoming. Right. Um, where they're like, well, this kid, I know it's at a, a smaller school um, and, and the talent he's playing isn't as good, but you throw on that tape and he is easily the best player in the field. He's the best athlete. He's got an insane cannon arm. And he's doing, again, he's doing more at the line of scrimmage as a redshirt freshman than some redshirt seniors at Power 5 schools are doing. Um, and, and so then you start to hear this, uh, and the tape is awesome. And he is doing this as a 19-year-old. And then, obviously, they only get the one showcase game they kind of gave him this past year because the FCS season moves to the to spring and summer. And uh, he struggles in the first half against uh, Central Arkansas. Second half, he looked a lot better. And then you don't see from don't, – don't get to see another game for him. Uh, well, like guys like Zach Wilson and Mac Jones are shooting up the board. And, and then um, his pro day was unbelievable. But I do feel it was undercovered how – how big and weird this is because right. generally speaking the the top quarterbacks were at least four-star recruits sometimes you get the josh allens or the zach wilsons who kind of have this meteoric rise but they're still playing in the in the fbs whereas trey lance is at north dakota state but i wonder if part of the reason it was undercovered is because north dakota state has been so good for so long they put Carson Wentz, obviously, into the league. They put Easton Stick in the league. He's just the next quarterback in the North Dakota State totem pole. And there was this, a bit of this narrative where it was he's dominating at the FCS level because he's on the most talented team because, again, North Dakota State's won eight of the last nine FCS championships. Well, like last weekend – It's not a perfect comparison, but a little bit of it. And uh, – that no, that's a, that's a good point. Um, but then you, you, you remove Trey Lance this season uh, as North Dakota State's playing. And, like, I just watched them lose to Sam Houston State in the FCS quarterfinals this past Saturday. And it's th this is a rare talent who was only – the only FBS interest he really got was to play safety in, in like, the MAC and the in, I think Minnesota recruited him a little bit, but only if he would play DB. And it, it's – I mean, it's rare you find a, a quarterback – built the way he is built as fast as he is with the arm talent he has that in, in big 10 country that ends up going to North Dakota state only, only needing 17 games to become the third overall pick. It, it's a, in reality, it's an insane story, but I think in today's uh, kind of NFL obsessed world, 
we're just looking for that next thing so quickly that we're not in, in the moment with how insane what Trey Lance just did was. Right. I mean, the, the, next, the next guy that puts a viral clip at his pro day of him throwing across his body is the next Patrick Mahomes. Like, it's like an insatiable desire to find something that's incredibly rare. Last thing on quarterbacks, two partner for you. One, who are your top – like, how did you rank the prospects? And then two – you kind of hit on this a little bit earlier, but who do you think is in the best position to succeed immediately? Um, so I, I rank them Lawrence one, Fields two, Lance three, Zach Wilson four, Mac Jones five. Um, and then just to throw in my six, I had Kellen Mond six. Okay. Uh, and I think, I mean, it's hard to pick against Trevor Lawrence. Um, obviously, it's strange because Urban Meyer's never been an NFL head coach, so that's going to be kind of exciting to see how that works out. But he did hire Daryl Bevel, the old Seahawks offensive coordinator, as his OC. And he hired Brian Schottenheimer, the other old Seahawks OC, as his quarterback coach. So there's a lot of NFL experience in the coaching staff. He gets um, – I mean, they draft Travis Etienne as well. James Robinson's coming off the 1,000-yard season. They have a pretty intact and experienced offensive line. It's not great, but it's, it's very solid. Uh, and then they, they have DJ Chark. They have LaVisca Chanel. They they uh they they sign um they sign Marvin Jones so it's a it's a pretty trustworthy pass catcher group so it's hard to pick against Trevor Lawrence I think fit wise I take Trey Lance in the 49ers I think that's the best fit in the in maybe in the entire draft um, Zach Wilson it's going to be hard early just because that Jets Jets roster is so young and the offensive line is so shaky. Um, Fields has a pretty good chance. I just don't think he's going to be starting early because they signed Andy Dalton. Andy Dalton's okay enough to start early in the year. Uh, Mac Jones versus Cam Newton, I think, is so strange because polar opposite <laughs> styles. And the offense the Patriots ran last year was tailored to what Cam Newton does, and Mac Jones does not do those things. So I'm really excited to see how how that plays out. If, if they change the offense for who's in that quarterback or what that looks like. One quick thing on the Trevor Lawrence part, because I thought you made an interesting point there and kind of putting a little bit of a Mississippi spin on it, is is there anything to the fact that Gardner Minshew like kind of succeeded with a lot of perceived crap around him? I, it sounds like the offensive line was a little better than anticipated, but he's a branded Mississippi kid right outside of Jackson where I'm from. Is there anything to that to where you could be a little higher on Trevor Lawrence because Gardner Minshew, who I think could be a pretty serviceable you know, borderline starter backup NFL quarterback, had that kind of success with the, I guess, perceived dysfunction around him? I, well, I mean, first of all, I think Gardner Minshew, if he, he got benched last year and it was ridiculous when he got benched right. because he, he was not the reason they were losing. It had, there was a lot of other factors in that. I think Gardner Minshew – who I, I, I love him. I think everyone loves him. He should be – uh, I hope he gets to go somewhere else because I think he is maybe not a starting franchise quarterback, but he is a top 32 quarterback in the NFL probably and should have a chance to compete for a job in a place that doesn't have a, a clear-cut starter. But I think that's a good point. Seeing what Minshew was able to do, and even James Robinson as an undrafted rookie at running back last year, um, seeing what those guys were able to do it, with all the dysfunction around Jacksonville, I, I think that that's a good sign that Trevor Lawrence should find some success early. Um, maybe not to the same extent Justin Herbert did with the Chargers, 
but I wouldn't be shocked to see him kind of hit the ground running the same way Herbert did. Uh, obviously, there, for a rookie quarterback entering the NFL, there's going to be poor games, but um, he's going to make Jacksonville so much more watchable than they have been. And they have an, just enough around him that I think – like, I don't think they're going to be a playoff team or anything, but I think he, he could pretty – much run away with the offensive rookie of the year award pretty early in, in his career, just given his talent and, and the pieces around him. People called Lance a project, but it sounds like you're hired to get that he gets on the field and kind of pushes the whole Jimmy G thing out quicker than most think. Yeah, he, I, he's just such a on the money fit for what Shanahan does. The play action boots are his best. Like the best thing he did at North Dakota state was run play action boots which is the thing Shanahan lives off of with their outside zone run system. And they, I mean, San Francisco has done a really good job building the playmakers around that, that quarterback and kind of hiding some of the flaws of Jimmy G and Nick Mullins and CJ Bathard. Um, so, I, so, so you never bought in just, I, I think that's fascinating. So you never bought into the whole Shanahan wants Mac Jones, the rest of the organization wants uh, Lance storyline. Cause that's, that seems surprising given what you said. It it just never made sense to me that he would want this this quarterback who didn't run any of the things he runs. Like Mac Jones ran such an arp like Sark ran an unbelievable offense at Alabama that was focused on getting his playmakers the ball in space and getting them wide open uh, with with route combos. And a lot of it wasn't anything like what Kyle Shanahan ran. So. Although by the end I was starting to believe, well, maybe I'm just wrong. Mac Jones can go third. I just did. I couldn't comprehend why that would be the pick over a guy like Trey Lance, who just seemed from day one on the money, the perfect fit for what the Shanahan system is. So that sounds like it was probably just a bunch of dudes that don't watch tape and don't really understand football, seeing Mac Jones kind of driving a Ferrari of an offense at Alabama and thinking that that's kind of the Shanahan thing when in all actuality, it's not similar at all. Yeah. And like, and, and by no means am I trying to toot my own horn and thinking that it should have been true. There were so many guys on and folks on, on draft Twitter who just couldn't were with in kind of the same boat as me where it just didn't make sense. And in some of the bigger uh, now, not to the level of Mel Kuyper, Todd McShay, Daniel Jeremiah, but some of the, the more trustworthy, uh, draft analysts at maybe slightly smaller media companies were pounding the table for they have to take Trey Lance or Justin Fields just based on his skill set. But Lance is the perfect fit. I mean, even at, at The Athletic, to I think it was today, uh, Ted Nagain wrote um, a, a piece about his favorite fits in this draft class uh, from the first, I think from the first round. And, and number one was Trey Lance, the 49ers, because basically – he's their perfect quarterback throw some rapid fire stuff just from the first round and elsewhere uh before i let you get out of here one i know the jamar chase story is cool but when you watch joe burrow go down in the manner that he did to where anyone that watches the nfl every week could see that coming for five weeks did you like or hate that pick because it just seems like you kind of have to go with the offensive lineman given what happened to him last year i know organizations don't think about it that way but just your thoughts on that pick because that's how i viewed it I, I 1 million percent go offensive line with that pick all day long, especially when you've got options like Pernay Sewell and Rashawn Slater on the board, who I thought were both top 10 players. And that's, again, that's not a slight at Jamar Chase, who was ob obviously a top 10 player. It's just sure. positional value. You're, 
when you need a quarterback and there's a top five talent there at quarterback, you're not passing on him. It's the same thing with offensive line. And I'll always believe you build in the trenches first. And great that he is Jamar Chase. I'm sure they're going to find success because they're both unbelievable talents. But I'd rather keep Burrow healthy and build that offensive line rather than start scrubs at, at like several positions on their offensive line. My, my rule of thumb is always if you're on the board and you don't know what to take, take, take the lineman. Always take the lineman. Right, because – and that's probably why they're the Bengals, right? Because, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of a, a layman over here, and I'm sitting there thinking, like, I watched Joe Burrow every week. He was awesome. I loved that kid. Loved the storyline. But that was really the first quarterback I've watched in the NFL for a while. After, like, five weeks, I was like, holy shit, he might actually get his head decapitated off. Like, this is bad. And then you just kind of – and I know he wanted Jamar Chase, and you just kind of draft his buddy instead of protect him. But, like, at a certain point, I'd kind of look at the scar on his knee and be like, hey, man, you don't need four of those. Like, I'd probably just draft the lineman. But so it goes. I guess that might be why they're the Bengals. Uh, kind of going past that, it seemed like the the Lions kind of lucked into a pretty good pick there at Sewell. That seems like a pretty good lot. I mean, you can't go wrong with something like that, right? I know it's not sexy, but if you're the Lions, like, you can't screw that up at that point, right? No, that, I thought that was a slam dunk. They actually had one of the better drafts uh, in my eyes of all of everybody. And it really – taking him seven set the tone because I, I had him third on my board. You get him there at the second most important position in football. And it's a slow rebuild in Detroit, so go get the best offensive lineman. I, I, I respect that move all day. When you guys do mock drafts next year, I don't know if there's like a uh, draft community email chain or whatever, but you guys should make 31 picks and then just leave the Raiders spot open because it doesn't seem to make any sense what they do every year. You know, people love to react to stuff, and I was kind of with it because when he drafted that, I knew who Alex Leatherwood was because I covered the SEC for, I guess, four or five years at that point. But, like, at that point in time, that seems like a guy you could have gotten in the second round. Where did you have him, and how shocked were you that John Gruden and Mike Mayock did this again? Uh, I was very shocked. I had him 53rd on my board. Oh, um, <laughs> okay. I, I think it was hands down the – biggest reach of the first round even because even some of the pass rushers who I felt were reached on later you'd heard the murmurs that they were going to be first round picks uh you never really heard that with Alex Leatherwood it 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 was more like second round mid second round was generally the thought process there um but you have to love the Raiders because they keep it they keep it in, it's just insane. When they're on the clock, anything can happen. They always seem to take – they love Alabama. They love Clemson. They love the big schools. They don't seem to care at all about value. Like, if Alex Leatherwood's your guy, I respect that. But make it make a move back and take him. Don't, right. don't take him 17. Or taking him. Yeah, and then, like, I mean, the rest of their draft was insanity. They draft three safeties. They draft, <laughs> like, half – I think of their five picks or whatever – um let me see six picks four dbs one's alex leatherwood 17 uh another is a mac pass rusher malcolm Kuntz, who i loved but I, I didn't think anyone was taking him in the third round 
And then they, they, their final picks, just a center who went to Mike Max high school. So I don't, I don't know what's going on with the Raiders, but Hey, they keep it entertaining. He, Gruden, if I'm not mistaken, drafted a punter in his first draft with the Raiders, didn't he? Oh yeah. The, the, I mean, the, the history of the Raiders in general drafting before Al Davis died was insane. Uh, and, and Gruden obviously was the coach of the Raiders a long time ago, comes back. He's keeping it insane. He, He's uh, keeping Al Davis's spirit alive, I think, the way he drafts. The New York Giants, I thought this was an interesting pick because Kadarius Tony was a kid, Ole Miss opened the year against them whenever the year did start, whatever, into September. Had a pretty good game, was a really exciting player. But for that style of receiver, I thought that was a very odd pick to go 20th overall because I feel like that's a guy that you could find value in early second round-ish, maybe even beyond that. I don't really know. I thought that was an odd pick. Um, particularly because I know there are different types of receivers, and this kind of is putting a hometown spin on it. I know it was a loaded class, but if you have, like, a guy like Elijah Moore available, why would you not take him instead of Kadarius Tony? I thought that was an odd pick. What were your thoughts on that? Uh, okay. I could understand – like, some people really, really like Kadarius Tony. I like him in the second round. I could understand the things he does well. He does incredibly well. He, he at times, he looks like Percy Harvin 2.0 with the the – the ability after the catch, but you also have to factor in his, his game in, in totality. Like he's a very raw red runner. He's still very raw with his hands. He just had, basically it took four years for him to kind of get, get a true role at Florida. And then he goes 20th to the giants who are not a team. I trust to use him correctly. Cause I think the best way to deploy Kadarius Tony is, you line him up all over the place. You give him carries. You get him involved on jet sweeps. You get the ball in his hand on screens. Jason Garrett's their offensive coordinator. Jason Garrett's one of the least creative offensive coordinators in the league. So I don't like that fit. And to your point about Elijah Moore, if if you're convinced you need a receiver there at 20, I don't know why you're, you're passing on Moore for, for Tony because, to me, Moore's one of the safest picks in the draft, one of my favorite players in the draft. And I think that that was a consensus take for the most part. Nobody watched Elijah Moore's tape and was disappointed. You came away thinking, this, okay, this guy has, after Devonta Smith, I think he had the second best hands in the class. I think he was one of the most fluid route runners in the class. He's, sure, he's 5'9", 184, whatever. There, there's, like, Kadarius Tony's not a big receiver either. They're both, in theory, natural slot receivers. Elijah Moore also, for one of the, being one of the smaller receivers in the class, attacks the 50-50 balls with more aggressiveness than some of these like six, four receivers. Uh, and he's also incredible after the catch. I think Elijah Moore is, I'm, I'm really happy he ended up with the jets though, because I think he gets an instant opportunity uh, and, and we get to see him and Zach Wilson grow together. So I'm and, and it, it makes it even more interesting. Both him and Tony end up in New York opposite sides of town and get there. I mean, to me, they should be compared throughout their careers because I think, Passing on on Elijah, Elijah Moore for Darius Tony is insanity. Did you did you feel a little? I, I like the Bateman kid from Minnesota. Did you feel similar feelings about that at all? I know they're much different type of receivers, and Baltimore was looking for something different. Was there any of that at all there too? And I say that to just say like around these parts, like Mississippi, people feel it's just fan message board stuff, but they feel like that old Mrs. program like has a bad. Uh, reputation people see it in a bad light within NFL circles because you had you know two I mean 
all of us that are listening to this podcast watched A.J. Brown and D.K. Metcalf for three years, and to watch them not be picked in the first round and in some case not early second just seemed insane. And then it happens to more. I thought that was more of a product of it just being a loaded receiver class instead of some grand conspiracy against a school in Oxford, Mississippi. But, like, did you feel that way when Bateman went at 27? And then just kind of thoughts on the old Miss receivers the last couple of years. So with the Bateman thing, I think that had more to do with fit. I Like, to me, Bate, Bateman and Elijah Moore were very much just in terms of prospects, very much on the same level, right. back, back end of the first round guy. 20 and later type first round picks um what baltimore needed was that outside x receiver right who obviously bateman's a little bigger than more um bateman is incredible with his release like he they needed a guy who could beat press coverage essentially uh and with hollywood brown being the smaller slot obviously they drafted him the first round a couple years ago i think that bateman pick have more to do with fit. Bateman's got the versatility to play X, to play Z, just line up the slot. He wins 50-50 balls maybe better than anyone else in this class. And they they kind of needed to get Lamar Jackson, that guy who can play a little bit more above the rim and do a little bit more downfield uh, and on the outside. Um, so I think that that's why they would have gone Bateman over Elijah Moore there. But in terms of a couple years ago, with the DK Metcalf and AJ Brown thing, I I can't I cannot answer how that happened. I'll never understand how DK Metcalf wasn't a first round pick. If I remember right, I had him tenth on my board. I thought he was going to be a top ten pick because in what world do you see a freak of nature like that playing wide receiver? And I know he obviously battled injuries at Ole Miss, but when he was on the field, he he was the best player on the field. And opposite him being AJ Brown, um. I can't believe he fell as far as he fell because there was like no more productive receiver in college football. And when you're that like what two twenty five and he he ran under a four five like that doesn't happen. Um, on the bright side, they both ended up in perfect situations and immediately made the NFL look stupid. I don't I I can I can kind of grasp the Elijah Moore slide only right. in terms of he, he's a specific type exactly, and it was a deep receiver class. I thought I thought that your DK and AJ Brown were in the class. It was a, a solid receiver class. I thought it um, it was like a little more top heavy. But me thinking it was top heavy had to do with me thinking DK Metcalf was worth the top ten pick, and then that doesn't happen. I think the NFL is just like they overreact. Like if you remember, DK Metcalf ran a poor three cone at the combine, and then people <laughs> freaked out forever, and it was so stupid. And there's just this weird overreaction to the stupid things like that where they'll ignore the, the tape where the, his change of direction is not an issue because he, in, in his workout clothes in Indianapolis, didn't have the greatest testing. Like, it's – the NFL, for as much go, uh, that goes into this as, as, like, the hours and hours these scouts and these teams pour into this, they're still make stupid mistakes because they're still human and they, they overreact to stupid things. And it, I mean, it even comes back to what you were saying earlier about groupthink. Like the fact that they let groupthink influence them, and, and no, no doubt about it, they do. Like that's insane to me too. There, so I think there, the, the NFL drafts an imperfect science, but there are teams who really don't help themselves. 
the last thing I'll throw at you before I ask you a couple – one last first-round thing, and then I'll, uh, I'll kind of let you have the floor for some later-round guys. People love – I mean, it's a big thing on NFL Sundays to do the Ole Miss had A.J. Brown, D.K. Metcalf, and Dawson Knox. How did they only win so many games? I would just like to point out – I don't know if very many people know this. The 2016 Ole Miss football roster, A.J. Brown, D.K. Metcalf, Demarcus Lodge, Trey Nixon, Quincy Adeboisio, and DeMaurier Stringfellow, all on the same team with Dawson Knox and that team. Oh, and Van Jefferson, and went five and seven. So who should be shot for that and why? <laughs> I think and, uh, I won't make you answer that. That I, I just find that crazy, that amount of NFL talent on one team at one time. Hugh Freeze could recruit the hell out of receivers. That team quit on him, um, but I, I just find that insane. Not to rub salt in the wound, but uh, Hugh Freeze might have a first-round quarterback at Liberty now. <laughs> and guess where he plays uh, the first week in November? Liberty comes to Oxford, Mississippi. So I think the entire world will stop uh, beginning of November <laughs> next year. That should be quite the interesting reception. Um, last thing before I let you kind of get to some later round, guys. Go back-to-back pick running backs at 24-25. The Najee Harris, like people seem to talk themselves into that thing. I think that Travis Etienne, like sto- both stories are cool, but like what are your thoughts on running backs in the first round and both of those fits? I will never uh, – I would never take a running back in the first round. I don't think you can justify it. It, it just you – know, even if they become all pros, the next thing is you have to pay them, and that never works out either. You can find – I mean, it looks worse for Jacksonville who – have an undrafted rookie run for a thousand yards last year and then spend a first round pick on another running back. And I get that at Travis Etienne, he's phenomenal. And I have no doubt about, about it. He's going to find success, but passing on instant impact defensive players, offensive linemen, or even pass catchers for running back just doesn't make any sense to me because you can build an off uh, a rushing attack out of having great offensive line play. You cannot build a rushing attack out of having a great running back and not a good offensive line and then the the fact of paying them is just not a good use of money at all Najee Harris it's a little slightly more justifiable just because it was a huge need in Pittsburgh um and the the he does influence the passing game and Ben Roethlisberger can barely throw the football more than 10 yards now so they're going to need someone to impact the short passing game but I still would never do it. And I, I, I'm actually a Steelers fan, and I was not happy that they did it. Any thoughts on second? I'll just lump second and third day in together. What stood out to you past kind of the uh, all the lights and everything on the first day of the draft? Is there anything that comes to mind immediately? Uh, I, I thought, just to name a couple of my favorite picks of the second round, Go ahead. Elijah Moore to the Jets, love that. Landon Dickerson to the Eagles. Had he not had the injury history, I think he was a slam dunk top 20 player in this class. Um, I did think there was another horrible pick from Jacksonville and a, a, a sketchy pick from Cincinnati both in a row where the Jags took Walker Little 45th, who hasn't played a game since week one of the 2019 college football season. Uh, and Jackson Carmen going 46. I thought that was a crazy pick. Um, there was there was a lot of fun picks though too like Rondell Moore to the Cardinals I cannot wait to see how Cliff Kingsbury uses him um, like I love that the NFC West take the so Cardinals go him and then the Seahawks come back and they take Dwayne Eskridge and the next pick the Rams take Tutu Atwell so it's three tiny 
really exciting receivers to the same division. I thought that was pretty fun. Um, and again, it, it was a really interesting class for pass catchers because a lot of them were slot receivers. Like those three guys were slot receivers who I think will find pretty quick success. Um, and and I, the NFL's never had better wide receivers than right now. And it's looking like, I know it's, again, it's ridiculously early, but 2022 on paper right now looks like it's going to be another great wide receiver class. And that'll give us like four years in a row. The wide receiver position has been the richest in the sport. Um, so I, I think we're going to see a lot of instant impact receivers uh, as rookies this year. I also think you, you, you saw a lot of kind of bizarre picks and that might've been a, a factor of the COVID thing and not, having as much information and teams being more willing to take swings this year because they know next year they'll have more information. And they'll be much in their mind, safer class. So I think like the, the, the Dallas Cowboys, basically their entire draft outside of the Micah Parsons pick was just huge swings. So I thought that was pretty nuts. And that, that was a big, uh, a big takeaway from the night or the, the three days, I should say. Um, and I guess, one final thought was after the top five quarterbacks, because they obviously all go in the first round, the next, the next four quarterbacks were just huge reaches. Like I cannot believe Kyle Trask went in the second round. So I, that's what I was about to ask you is what were your biggest, my question I had written down was the, go ahead and answer the way, finish your thought. But my question on top of that, when you finish is guy not taken in the first round that ends up having a career as a quarterback. Go. Okay, so I thought Trask, to me, was not the guy you would bet on on day two. Um, great success at Florida, no doubt about that. But just generally, if you're going to bet on a non-first-round quarterback, because for the most part, they don't become the franchise quarterbacks, you bet on the guys with the physical traits. And he just – like, he's, he's a statue in the pocket. He has a pretty weak arm. He reminds me a lot of Mason Rudolph in Pittsburgh, okay. where he, he was a very successful college passer partially because the offense he was in and partially because the weapons around him. Like, I think he'll be a long-term backup, but nothing more. And I don't think that's worth a second-round pick. Uh, and then, obviously, the next two quarterbacks were Davis Mills and Kellen Mond, who are both – I thought both went too early at 66 and 67. But if I'm going to bet on any of these quarterbacks, it's Kellen Mond, specifically because you he, he was a, a three-and-a-half-year starter at Texas A&M, got better each year. And physically, he has the best combination outside of the top four guys of athleticism and arm talent. And that's something you can work with. Uh, most realistically, none of these non-first-round quarterbacks are going to really become anything. But if I had to pick one, I would pick Kellen I was about to ask that, too. Is like, what are the odds we get into a you know, Kirk Cousins' first Monday night football, like, shit the bed of the year you get into should you play a Kellen Mond thing. Like, do you think that'll ever be – not ever become a real thing. Do you think that ever becomes kind of a deal next season? Because Cousins is a really up-and-down dude. I don't know your thoughts on him in general. But when you have something like that happen and they bring in a guy like that and if they you know, start slow out of the gates, no matter how rational it is, it seems natural that that would kind of spark a conversation. So uh, – I. I don't think Mond will actually play unless it's like week 17 and it's a throwaway game. But I do not doubt that one poor kind of primetime game from Kirk Cousins will have people wanting to see Kellen Mond. And to me, 
if you if you're a franchise and you don't think Kirk Cousins is the answer, and I have to assume they don't think he's going to win them a Super Bowl, um, if they're if they're being realistic, I'm all for throwing throwing the young guy in if it's nine games of this season and you don't really have a chance and seeing what you've got. I mean, the the way I think about it is look, and now this is a very rare situation where Dak Prescott goes in the fifth round, Tony Romo gets hurt. Dak Prescott becomes the Cowboys starter. And as we know, Dak Prescott was awesome at at Mississippi state and SEC. Um, And he had all the physical tools you look for in the college production. And obviously it all clicks and he becomes a franchise quarterback. So I think you can tell pretty early if a quarterback has got it. I think it's rare to find a quarterback who looks terrible early in their NFL career and then actually develops and becomes a guy who you think could win a Super Bowl. So I'm all for kind of halfway through the year, you're out of the race. Let's see what the rookies got. I, I, I live for that. Interesting. Last thing before I let you go, I don't want to pigeonhole you into a number, but just like couple of favorite drafts among teams and couple of least favorite drafts just in their totality in terms of organizations. Yeah. Um, so one that stood out uh, immediately to me was the Chargers. I, I thought slam dunk with Rashawn Slater in the first round. They get Asante Samuels Jr. in the second round. They got a lot of good depth players in the in the uh, third or on, on day three. And in the third round, they actually draft Josh Palmer, who is a Canadian who played at Tennessee, who I think a guy who's a candidate to be a better pro quarter or pro receiver than college receiver because Tennessee never had a trustworthy quarterback. So I really like what they did. Um, I loved what the Titans did. I think their first four picks, Farley, Raidens, Rice, and Molden, are going to be pretty instant impact guys. Um, I thought the Browns had a really good draft. Uh, just a lot of a lot of guys who are going to either a hit the field early and make an impact with Greg Newsom and Jeremiah Usukormoa, or B, be really interesting developmental starters with Anthony Schwartz, James Hudson, Tommy, Tog- Tommy Togiai. Um, I thought the Eagles had an underrated one, but this is more so because they took a bunch of guys who I personally really was high on. Uh, like, I mean, everyone was high on Devonta Smith, but Landon Dickerson, who, again, I think was a top 20 player had he been healthy. Milton Williams, who they take 73, defensive lineman for Louisiana Tech. Incredible tape, incredible run defender who, insane pro day, um, didn't have big-time sack production. So I feel like that's part of the reason why there's less buzz around his name. And uh, in the, uh, the the fourth and fifth round, they get Zach McPherson, who's a nickel from Texas Tech, who I think is going to be uh, a starting nickel at some point in his career. And Kenny Gainwell, the running back from Memphis, I think would have been a day two pick had he not um, uh, opted out this year and then kind of running backs being devalued. I think he's going to find a role pretty early in Philadelphia. So those were some of my favorite ones. There was a lot there. It honestly, it was for the most part, no one had outside of the, the Cowboys Raiders and Rams and Texans. I don't think anyone had a disgustingly poor draft. Everyone was kind of average to above average what you'd expect. Okay. That makes sense. Kind of the usual culprits, right? I mean, you could have guessed the Raiders being a wild card. And then, I mean, hell, with everything going on in Houston, it's it's kind of a shit show. That's uh, Dude, this was great stuff. I really appreciate it. His name's Rob Paul. Uh, Rob underscore Paul 
Uh, seven rounds in heaven on the Sports Ring Network. This was awesome, man. I appreciate this a lot. I didn't tell you how long I was going to keep you, but if it was an hour, like I wouldn't have told you an hour. I was going to lie regardless. I really appreciate the time. This was awesome. Well, thanks for having me. I, I'm always down to talk NFL draft with anyone who will listen. Awesome, man. We'll definitely do this again. Again, check him out at Rob underscore Paul on Twitter. Some awesome draft content. Check out his podcast, Seven Rounds in Heaven. I got that right, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, cool. I'm bound to screw stuff up in terms of uh, phrases and pronunciation all the time. Man, this was awesome. You be well, and we will definitely do this again soon. Thank you so much.